so glad that you all are here. Um, if you are new to us, we have, you can turn in your Bibles. They'll also be on the screen. I would, I would encourage you, if you've got your Bible, do both. Do both. I'm going to go verse by verse here, and we're going to go through the text verse by verse. But this morning, we're in John chapter 20. And go figure, we're talking about the resurrection of Christ on Easter Sunday. So before I get into that, just if you want to know how we arrived at this scripture, um, first of all, it's Easter, duh. Second of all, um, but the other part is that we're preaching our way through every part of the Apostles' Creed. So the Apostles' Creed goes like this. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. That's what we preached about last week. He, and he has ascended now to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And so we're he ascended again is where we are this morning. So we're at the resurrection part, and we'll do the, we'll do the ascending part, the res- resurrection this week, ascending next week, but that's why we are here. And it, Bob is such a mathematician that he made all these things add up so that here we would arrive here on Easter Sunday and we would be with the scripture. So we're in John chapter 20, 1 through 18 this morning, and we will jump right in. Early Sunday morning, your text might actually say early the first day of the week. That's why Sunday's the first day of the week. While it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved. That's what John always refers to himself that way. She said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and I don't know where they have put him. Peter and the other disciple ran to the tomb to see. The other disciple outran Peter and got there first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen cloth lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying to the side. Then the other disciples also went in, then the other disciple also went in, and he saw and believed. For until then they hadn't realized that the scriptures said he would rise from the dead. Then they went home. Verse eleven. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white robed angels sitting at the head and the foot of the place where Jesus' body had been lying. Why are you crying, the angels asked. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. She glanced over her shoulder and saw someone standing there behind her. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Why are you crying, Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and exclaimed, teacher, or Rabboni. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father. But go and find my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my God, to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. So Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. Then she gave them this message. Um, So this morning, we're going to be focusing on Mary's reaction. Now, that Jesus is alive is, is the main part of this, but... We know this morning that in this room there are three types of people, and, and one is represented by every single person in this text, maybe. So there, there's John, and John's like some of y'all. You've, seen, you've, you've weighed the evidence, you've looked at what the Bible says, and you go, I believe, I have faith. Then you have Peter. Peter, at the end of the story, we don't know where Peter is. He's, he doesn't stay long enough. He just looks at what he sees, and he, we, don't hear him, we don't hear the mental conversation of him figuring out and going, I'm going to apply this to what I know. He just goes off, and I'm sure he's just kind of going, what's going on? And then we have Mary, who sees the evidence, and there really doesn't get it, but stays long enough to kind of figure out what's going on. Now, then there's the other person that's here this morning that's like, I only came because I heard that I wouldn't get lunch unless I came to church today. And if you're that person, we're so glad you're here too. By the way, we're so glad that all of you are here this morning. But we're here this morning because there is 
first of all, forensic evidence for the resurrection. It's not just that we are all here and Jesus was a great moral teacher and we're celebrating his moral teachings or we're celebrating that Jesus has given us a new culture or we're celebrating that Jesus somehow was this you know, way of life. Jesus is not that. Jesus is a living risen savior. That's why we're here this morning. And we know that there's enough forensic evidence to support the resurrection. We'll talk about that a little bit more. But also we know that there is human nature evidence in this text. Case in point, we know that this text shows us directly the nature of men and women, and we can divine truth from that. And I'm trying to be a little bit funny, so I'll just go ahead and tell you that this is okay to laugh at this stuff, by the way. Women, by the way, I'm going to pick on you first because you're going to get to be the story of this. You're going to get to be the hero of story. But first of all, women, it is in your human nature to take 12 times longer than the normal person to decorate anything. Now, I'm just going to let you know that. Like men, if we hear that someone's going to have a baby shower, we go in, throw some tablecloths down, throw some stuff up on the wall, play some music, go to the store, get food, and we're like 15 minutes tops. Women, you're in there for eight hours. We have no idea what you're doing. When we come out... To our eye, it looks exactly the same as if we'd done it, but I know that you probably kissed every square inch of what was going on. We don't, I don't know what you're doing there. But you are the heroes of the story because Mary is actually the one we're going to be focusing on, and we see the human nature come out in the story. So women, now it's your chance to get to pick on the men. How many of you ladies have ever just said, hey, will you get something for me out of the refrigerator? And what does your husband do? He walks up to the refrigerator, looks in, doesn't touch anything as if he has x-ray vision and can see through everything in the refrigerator. Turns around to you and says, there's none in here, closes the door and walks away, daring you to ask him to go back and look again. And is it just me? To which when you, then when you say, you say, we don't have any, yes we do, and then you call him close enough so that you can look at him and be like, and I know you better come watch me do this. And you open the refrigerator, push the milk aside, push the you know orange juice aside. Back there, there's eight of whatever it is you told him are right there. And you're like, now the only other thing in the story lacking that would be human nature would have been if, if Mary Magdalene had been on the way to the place that Jesus had, was lying with 19 throw pillows. Just, just y'all. Okay, good. We have 25 thread pillows on my bed. I don't know what to do with them. They all go all the way from one end of the bed all the way to the other. Okay, just me. Okay. But we're here today because of an event in history. Not, not a philosophy, not, not a moral way of life. We're here today because Mary met Jesus at his open tomb. So we're going to look at this text, and we're going to go verse by verse. And we go verse by verse. We're going to start with verse 1, obviously. When we look at verse 1, we start at verse 1, and we start with Mary Magdalene. This is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary was not the, the woman that anointed Jesus' feet. Mary Magdalene was the one who was delivered from seven evil spirits and then was there at the cross and was there here the first day. She's one. And so Mary, in her broken eagerness, she's driven by grief and loss. She's going to go visit the tomb. She's going to go visit the grave. This is very typical. Even we do this. You know, there are people that come to our own internment garden out here where the ashes of someone they love are buried. There are people that go over here to Oakwood. There's somehow this idea of being close to them. And so Mary here, driven by grief, is going to do it. But when she gets there, this is going to be a little bit more of like a cave as, as carved into the side of a hill. And so the stone that would have been there is moved away. And so she gets there, it's moved away, and she's alarmed because it happened at dark. Remember, what does it say? In, for early in the morning when it was still dark. So that meant that the stone was rolled. Nothing good happens in a graveyard at dark. You know, so she knows this. She's, she's, very, so she's right there going with it. And so in verse two, fearing what happens in the dark in a grave, grave robbers. So fearing a grave robbery 
or maybe even just treachery on the part of the Jewish leaders, Mary leaves and she goes to go run and tell the disciples. So she goes to go run and tell the disciples, John and Peter, John always is gonna refer to himself as the disciple Jesus loved. He doesn't wanna like refer, hey, that's me, you know, in the end of the text where Jesus loved. He doesn't wanna like refer, hey, that's me, you know, in the end of the text where the disciple Jesus loved is following along behind Peter and Peter and Jesus, that's John. And so here we get John again. So there's a foot race in verses three and four to the tomb. You know what? Don't make too much out of this. The reason that John got there first is probably because he's younger. And I said in the 830 service, Kevin, that came up here and read scripture. If you said something's going on over there at Viewmont School and you said, Kevin and Paul, go run over there, it's no mystery that Kevin is gonna beat me there. I'm fat and old. So he's gonna beat me there. And so John beat Peter there. Don't make anything too spiritual out of that. So verses five, six, and seven, you gotta give yourself a little bit of understanding because this is a tomb. How many of you are like, just this afternoon, you're like, hey, listen, we're not just gonna like have a made-up thing to like go see the empty tomb. We're actually gonna go to a tomb that might be occupied by some bodies. Who wants to sign up to go in there? Right, exactly. None of y'all are like, this sounds great. And kind of when it's dark and maybe a little bit foggy, that'll be even better. So you can give them a little bit of sympathy that they didn't just rush inside to see, but they're, they're kind of peering in. So there's a little fear and they enter into a tomb and they see some of the forensic evidence. You know, there's no grave robbers that unwrapped the body that would have been so bloodied and scarred that we knew from what had happened at the crucifixion. It's put there, it's put away, it's placed there for Jesus is simply saying, remember what I said. I would be beaten, but on the third day I would rise again. And it's put there as evidence, just, just so that he's inviting belief. It's this evidence that's inviting belief. And there's no grave robbers. So they wouldn't have, they would have taken the whole body with them. And so again, I wanna just stop right there and just say again, if you say ever that somebody asks you, why do you believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior? Why do you believe he's raised from the dead? And you say, I don't know, I just believe. I will submit to you that you have superstition but not belief. Belief, true faith, is based on evidence and reason and rationality. So we're dealing with forensic evidence here that they have. So John then is gonna couple what he knows and what's been said in the Bible with the evidence. And so we see that here in just a minute. So in 8 and 10, verses 8, 9, and 10, John takes the evidence of what he sees, couples it with what has been said, not only in the Old Testament through prophecy hundreds of years ago, but what Jesus himself said, for I will be handed over to the religious leaders who will beat me, mock me, and crucify me, but on the third I will rise again. And John remembers those, and he puts them together, and that's where faith comes from. He takes the evidence and the reasons and he goes and puts it with rationality and then he gets, there's real faith there. And so what does it say? He believed and he left. Peter, of course, then is just kind of, he's, he's kind of still weighing the situation. We don't know. We don't know what his, his mental, mental game was going on right now. But the important part is neither stayed. Neither stayed. They both left. So here's where Mary is truly the heroine of the story. And I'm gonna stop because I'm gonna say this about three times. Anytime anyone ever tells you that Christianity is a religion that tries to keep women down, I want to just stop being right there and just say, first of all, no story of any, of any person of any caliber 2,000 years ago would have included a woman as being the first person there because women were possessions. They were thought of lower than children sometimes, but the Bible lifts them up as the heroines of what's going on. And then not only that, but you also got to see this. Mary is the first person to be called and commissioned to be a messenger of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. So pretty high position here that Christ, because Jesus loves and understands all, all are equal. So Mary remains. And in verse 11, it says Mary remains and she was weeping. Now, 
Don't, don't just read this. <laughs> this is the text. The word in the text is literally a wailing, an overcoming, an overwhelming of emotion that she had. She's weeping and wailing. And you gotta just realize that this is a tough, tough place she's in because she has grief, but now she has grief and the grief is mixed with shock. She was just gonna come and be outside the place where the big stone was there and she was gonna grieve and mourn and maybe lay a flower or two there and then go home. But now there's this there's this comma, you know, that's there. The stone's rolled away. What's, what's next? I don't know. And so in verse 12, the grief leads her to then go look inside the tomb. In verse 12, she sees angels there. The fact that, she, the fact that there's no exclamation part in here, point in here is actually pretty okay. Because guess what? People that are overcome with grief, you can tell them pretty much anything and they just kind of respond with, you know, whatever. I'm just, I'm too overwhelmed to, to get this. But what I want you to see is that there are angels sitting at the head and the foot of where Jesus had laid. Any Jewish person at that moment would have been like, wait a minute, that sounds like the mercy seat, which was the covering of the top of the Ark of the Covenant in the temple where God's presence was supposed to rest. And so the Ark of the Covenant, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, it's a little bit crazy, but there's some good, you know, biblical stuff in there. I wouldn't put it up there with Jesus of Nazareth, but, you know, good movie. And so there's the Ark of the Covenant, and there would have been cherubim carved in gold on either end of that, and that would have been called the mercy seat. But the fact that there's an angel on either end, this is in Exodus 25, 19, if you want to go look it up. But now there's nothing there. They would have thought and they would have understood the way to the Father is now open because of what Christ has done, because he's risen, because he's, the debt that we had of sin has been paid in full. The way to God is now open. And so Jesus comes and he, excuse me, the angels ask, and they ask the most true question. You can actually ask a true question ever. And it'd be the same thing if you'd have looked at someone who is sitting at your table on Thanksgiving with the table filled with food, and they were to say, I'm so hungry. And you go, why are you hungry? Well, she's in the presence of Christ and the angels. She doesn't realize it yet. And they ask her, why are you crying? But I want you to just pay attention because here in verses 13, she answers, and even in her despair, she still has hope and faith. She says, if you know where they have taken my Lord, what does she call him even in despair? Lord, faith, even in despair. And so in verse 14, she she hears this person. She glances over her shoulder, but her circumstances, her emotions have masked her from being able to see the truth. So in verse 15, Jesus then uses the same phrase, because Jesus is there, he's behind her, she can't recognize him. He uses the same phrase that he used in, in John chapter 18, verse four. That was, when the, that was when the soldiers were coming up to the Garden of Gethsemane to go and arrest Jesus, and Jesus said, who are you looking for? Who are you looking for? Who are you looking for? And he says the same thing. And he says, he's saying to her basically, if you would see past your emotion, you would actually see me. So, but what you need to realize is that Mary is doing this. She looks over her shoulder, and she sees someone. She kind of is probably partially looking at him, but partially maybe looking down, and she says, where have they taken my Lord? Why are you crying? So then the text tells us, and we get from verse 16, now this is serious, in verse 16, she is actually pivoted away from Jesus. She's not even looking at him. She's pivoting away from Jesus because Jesus is gonna call her by name in verse 16. This goes back to John chapter 10, verse three. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and they know my voice and I will call them each out by name and they will recognize it and follow me. So he calls her by name, and she actually, it tells us right there, she turned toward him. She had turned away. She turns towards him and says, teacher, rabbi. It's kind of like beloved rabbi. And then we get this part in verse 17 where you're kind of like, hey, that doesn't sound like the, the cuddly, precious moments Jesus that I know. He says, don't cling to me? Wait a minute. 
I thought that's what Jesus, I thought Jesus was just a big cuddly guy and we're cling to him. Hang on. Why does, why does this happen? For a couple reasons. It's perplexing that Jesus would say, don't cling to me. But there are two parts of this that are important. The first part of this is he's saying, listen, it's not gonna be this way anymore. It's not gonna be like it was. You are entering into a new era. My earthly ministry is fulfilled, is completed. You know, I'm gonna hang around for the days until Pentecost. I'll be around and I'll appear randomly, but I'm not gonna be teaching in the temple anymore. That time of who I was when you could just come sit next to me, that era is gone. I'm going to now ascend to my father. Don't cling to me. I haven't ascended to my father yet. And what do we know about that? That Jesus especially now sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and he intercedes for us. That's amazing. That means that Jesus, the one who is made like us, the one who is perfect, the one who is sinless, the one who went to the cross to pay our debts, is now the one sitting right there at the right hand of the Father. And so he's, don't, don't cling to me. He's not saying it in a mean way, but secondly, he's also just saying like, you got a job to do. You got a job to do. It's, parents, you know how this is. Like your kids get ready to go to school in the morning and somehow they feel like they need to retile the bathroom. You're kind of like, no, 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 put that, we gotta go. And so that's what he's saying. He's like, you know, you need to go. You've gotta get out of here. You've got a job to do. And the job now, because you have been fully now adopted into my family, you go and tell them that your father and my father, that your God and my God, and you tell my brothers, we're all in this together. Because of what I've done, we're in this together. And so then in verse 18, her faithfulness and her faithful devotion now propels her to leave. And she leaves and faithfully goes and tells these disciples what has happened. She is the first person to be a herald of the gospel. And what an incredible thing. He lifts up a woman and she is the hero of this story. Not just the hero, but forevermore the one, the first person commissioned by Jesus. And so let's go back to what I said at the very beginning. For some, Easter, we experience Easter, we experience our relationship with Jesus just like John did. We hear, we see the evidence, we believe. We just, we, Jesus is the son, he's the son of the God, he's the Messiah, he's risen again, I believe it. Some of us are like Peter. We hang around just long enough to get some of the evidence where we go, I don't really know, and then we leave. And then some of us are like Mary, and we're kind of like, not really sure, but I'm gonna hang around long enough I'm gonna hang around long enough so that, and the hang around long enough so that, I'm gonna give you four things that Mary does in the she hangs around so long so that, and here here they are. First of all, these are the keys to faith, and this is the thing I'm gonna ask you four questions about Jesus, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, whether you're considering it or not considering it. Four questions. When it comes to Jesus, number one, will you stay long enough to consider the evidence? Will you stay long enough in this situation? Will you stay long enough around Jesus? Will you hang out long enough to consider the evidence? Because that's what Mary does. Mary looks inside the tomb, and not only does she see the angels, that's pretty awesome, that's pretty awesome evidence, but she sees the laid out and folded grave clothes. Well, you know what, that was the evidence for her. But let's lay out the evidence for us. Let's lay out the evidence for us. And I'm really not gonna give you a ton because we don't have all day long because there's that much evidence for the resurrection. But number one, I love what Chuck Colson said about it. Chuck Colson was one of the key people in the Watergate scandal, and Chuck Colson had lied to Congress, and people had lied in what was going on with Richard Nixon, and Chuck Colson said, it took less than two weeks for the 12 men that were indicted with Watergate to fold and to buckle and say, yeah, we've been lying about it. 
And yet every disciple that had been there that witnessed, witnessed the resurrection and the resurrected Jesus, every single one of them was killed. And 30, some of them lived 30, 40 years. John went to the salt mines in Paphos. Paphos. And, nev- and never, re- no, I, I, it didn't really happen. Never happened. And, and Chuck Colson said, if 12 men couldn't keep alive for two weeks and yet these men died saying, Jesus is raised and Jesus is Lord. That tells you pretty much all you need to know. Some of you might go, well, you know what? So what Muslims, they die for their faith all the time. There's a difference between dying for something that you know is a lie and dying for something that you hope is true. I'll say that one more time. There's a difference between dying for a lie and dying for something that you hope is true. The, the disciples died for what they knew was true. Muslims, militant, militant Islamists, they may go detonate a bomb because they hope that they will go to heaven that is, you know, given them a thousand virgins when they get there. They hope that's true, but that was a lie that was told to them, not a lie that they came up with. So you consider, are you going to stay long enough to consider the evidence? So let's look at the other evidence. What, is, what does John do in this situation? John takes the forensic evidence that he has and he couples it with what? The Old Testament prophecy. For you will not allow your beloved to stay in the grave. He couples it with Jesus' own words. I will be handed over, I will be crucified, I will be buried, but on the third I will rise again. And he takes the forensic evidence and puts it with the testimony of God himself and says, I believe, I believe. But you've got to remain with the evidence. You've got to remain in the evidence because Mary did not put it together like Sherlock Holmes right there. Sherlock Holmes, I love those movies. Robert Downey Jr. is like seeing everything in slow motion and there's quadratic equations going on in this part of his brain and all that kind of stuff. And all of a sudden he goes, ah, she's not like that. She's seen it all, and she remains in the evidence, and she begins to be rational, at least part of it in this. And so I'm inviting you to say, based on the evidence, based on your evidence, your evidence is what's going to help you confront your emotion. Because in that, in that moment, she, couldn't, she didn't care about the angels, she didn't care about other stuff, but the evidence is working to confront her emotion. Now, the reason this is important, because in our lives, our, the evidence of Christ's resurrection has got to confront the emotions of how we feel about Christianity. Because there are a lot of people that are like, well, I just don't like Christianity. I don't like what you say about this, I don't like what you say about this, I don't like the teaching like this, I don't like this. Hang on. Evidence doesn't care about your feelings. I'm going to tell you a story about that. When I was a little kid, Mountain Dew was out. But they introduced this new soda called Mellow Yellow, which is Mountain Dew's little red-headed stepchild. Um, so Mellow Yellow came out. And I don't know if you're, if you know, I was born in 1973. I know I'm about to die. Thank you. Um, so I was born in 1973. When Mellow Yellow came out, they had this ad campaign where people would get a thing of Mellow Yellow. This was back in the day where you had a bottle. You would crack the top off of it, and then you would just try to down it faster than anyone around you. Didn't it? I was the only person in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, we were doing this, or anybody else? Just me? Okay, good. Just me. I'm a redneck. Thank you. Um, and so, you know, what a genius marketing. You don't even get to enjoy it. You're just trying to choke it down before everybody else can. And so they had the mellow yellow guzzle at the city park with a big sign, and you could challenge people when you went there. And so here I am, like 11 years old, and I walk up there, and I'm like, I'll do this. I can't guzzle anything. I don't, my body is not made that way. I'm like, Whoa. So, of course, like, there, no one will challenge me, not because I'm, like, some amazing person, but everybody's like, dude, I have, like, four, I'm good, you know. And it was, like, a dollar at that time, which is the sodas were 35 cents or something. So there was a girl over there, and she was like, yeah, I'll challenge you. And I was like, got this in the bag. Got this in the bag. So it was a problem when we, you know, he's, he, sets a, he sets a timer, and the timer's going up from zero. So they crack it, 
and I tilt it back, and I had not gotten it to my mouth, and she is halfway through. And I tilt it back, and I had not gotten it to my mouth, and she is halfway through. Which really was crummy because I took three sips and put it down with 95% of the soda still in it, and she then went, I didn't even want to finish the soda. I wanted just to be like, no! You know, just run away. Is it? Why? Because my emotions, which my emotion was, anything you can do, I can do better because I'm a man. That's all I need. That's all, that's all I had. That was my emotion. But confronted with the evidence, there is a female far more superior to you this, this, than you will ever be. I wanted to run away, but I had to stay because it was the only dollar I had. So I didn't even try to finish it like in a quick fashion. I just kind of sat there. And I, 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 if I had been like the man in the man, I would have just been like. But I didn't do that. So I just kind of went like. But I had to acknowledge because the evidence trumped my emotion. The evidence made my emotion go, wait, wait, wait. We get, we push this emotion out because the evidence demands a response. So the evidence is what confronts your emotional pivot. Remember, she had pivoted away, but Jesus calls to her, and she pivots back to him. So sometimes we've had a cultural pivot from Jesus. We've had an emotional pivot from Jesus. I don't like Christianity. I don't like, I don't like what they say about this. I don't like what they teach about that. I don't want you to say, can you stay long enough to consider the evidence? The second thing is, will you stay long enough to hear your name? Will you stay long enough to hear your name? I love verse 16. Verse 16 simply just says this. It just starts out, the first word of the verse is her name, Mary. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and exclaimed, teacher, a rabboni. Stay long enough to hear your name because a relationship with Jesus is all about the personal call of the king to those who belong to him. Stay in the evidence. Be near enough to Jesus and Jesus is gonna respond personally to you. Now, you know what? Christianity is not, I don't know if you've heard, but Christianity in a family tradition. More and more in our culture nowadays, we have a group of people that grew up maybe hearing about Jesus, but now they come to Easter, and they're like, what's Easter all about? Well, it's about Easter eggs and going to take a picture with the bunny and maybe having an Easter egg hunt and whatever. And like, do you go to church? Nah. And more and more people are calling themselves non-religious or their religious affiliation is none. That, that's what I am. I'm none. And so I want to say to you, yeah, if you think Christianity is some kind of family tradition, it's not. If you think Christianity is a code of morality that we live by, it's not. If you think Christianity is a successful philosophy for some people, it is not. By the way, ask the disciples who were crucified and murdered. Ask the people in Sri Lanka who there was eight church bombings, I think, so far on Easter Sunday, over 150 people dead. Ask them if Christianity is a successful philosophy. Because they're not going to tell you that. What they're going to tell you is, I was called by name by my living Savior. So you want to become a disciple of Jesus Christ? That's different from saying Christianity is something that I do. So Jesus is calling you to be, be a disciple. And being a disciple of Jesus hinges on being called by name and responding to the call of a resurrected Lord in real time. Mary wasn't responding to a philosophy of Jesus. Mary wasn't responding to a morality. Mary wasn't responding to a culture. She wasn't responding to a tradition. She was responding to a risen Savior. 
So it would be a mistake if you never stay around this long enough to hear yourself called by name because I can promise you he will call you by name because he knows it. And Psalm 139 says, I know every hair on your head. I saw you when you were being formed in the utter seclusion of your mother's womb. Every day about your life was laid out and you knew it all. And then David reflects and he says, how precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They outnumber every sand grain on every beach in the world. That's how well you are known. And you don't think God knows your name? Stay long enough. And believers, you and I need to remember that you're someone that's like, I know, I know, I know, I believe, I believe. We even need to be reminded We need to be reminded that this is a personal invitation from God to follow him. He's not just saying, hey, y'all, follow me. He's looking and saying, hey, Jason, follow me. Hey, Judah, follow me. Hey, Mary, follow me. He knows your name. Third of all, will you stay long enough to expose your misconceptions about Jesus? Will you stay long enough? Because Mary stays long enough to have her misconception about Jesus actually be confronted. She stays long enough. In verse 17, don't cling to me, Jesus said. Well, why did he say that? Because she went, Don't cling to me. Mary wanted Jesus in verse 17, but she wanted her version of Jesus. That's not an option. She wanted her version of Jesus. She wanted her favorite idea of Jesus. She wanted her idea of Jesus, not the reality of who Jesus actually is. And Jesus is saying to her, don't cling to me. We're coming into a new era. This is a new era. It's not like where I'm gonna be walking around and I got 12 doofy dudes that don't really know anything and one of them that's gonna betray me and every time I say something, they're like, no, and I'm shut up, follow me. Not gonna be like that anymore. We're reaching a new era where I'm gonna be glorified and I'm gonna ascend to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Don't cling to me. My early ministry is over. My earthly ministry is completed. I'm gonna ascend to the Father. And so this is the same for many people today, same for many people, because in reality, we don't want Jesus, we want our favorite version of Jesus. We want the version of Jesus that we've created in our minds, we want the version of Jesus that says, hey, you know what, I'm Jesus, and I believe that all behavior is okay. I'm Jesus, and I came into your life so that you'll be happy all the rest of your life. I'm Jesus, and I'm the most safe, non-confrontational person ever. And, and we go, I like that Jesus, I want that Jesus, and we cling to him, and Jesus says, don't, you better let go of that Jesus because it's not the real Jesus. Will you stay long enough to have your misconceptions about Jesus be confronted, and will you respond? Because sometimes we go, well, I don't like that Jesus. So that's the difference between rejecting the Jesus that you have made up and the Jesus that is who has revealed himself through scripture. Another story, here you go. When I first got married to Danielle, and really this went on for about 20 years, we've been married for going on 25 here this year, I thought that Danielle was pretty much like a vending machine. Husbands, do you understand what I'm getting ready to say? I thought that if I put something in, I would get something out. Like if I can figure out how to put in what I want, I will get back out what I want. If I can put in what I think she likes, then I'll get back what I want. And so I labored under this assumption for 20 years. Guess what? That's not how women are. It took me 20 years, maybe 15, I don't know. But I was just kind of like, but if I could just figure out what to put in, then I could figure out what I get out. I had to let go of that version of, of Danielle because that's not who she is. If I want to have a true loving relationship with her, I have to love her for who she is, not who I want her to be, what version of her I could make if I could have like the Danielle 2.0 that all it took was just making the bed and then she's like, this is the greatest thing ever. You know, I want to come on, uh, look, I made the bed. Look, I vacuumed. Yeah, thank you. I just made all the money for our family today. Oh. 
But I had to let go of the version of Danielle that I wanted and that I had made up so that I could love the version that actually existed, so that I could serve and have a true relationship with the one that actually is here. And some of us are like that with Jesus. We've got to confront and stay long enough to confront the misconception we have about Jesus. Well, you know what? I followed Jesus, and then this happened in my life, and this happened in my life, and this happened in my life. Yeah. Jesus said verbatim, in this world, you will have trouble. He called it. I don't know where we got this idea. He went to the cross, by the way. I don't hear too many people being like, hey, where are you going on vacation? Well, I'm going to Aruba. Well, I'm going to the cross. It doesn't sound like, you know, oh, this is great, like your best life now. Okay. And we want to confront that. And go, but oh, this isn't what I signed up for. And Jesus says, you signed up for me to never, ever leave you or forsake you. And for me to conquer death in the grave so that I could be with you forever. And for you to now have an unencumbered path to God the Father. So sometimes we've got to let go of the Jesus that we have created in order to hold on to the one who is real. And then finally, will you stay long enough to be commissioned by him? That's the beautiful ending of the story. He doesn't just say, hey, don't hold on to me, go away. No, he says, don't hold on to me because I'm commissioning you to go share the good news of my resurrection, period. Will you stay long enough to be commissioned? And this is the part where we, 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 we graze between the people that are like, yeah, I'm a Christian, and the people that are like, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, because the people that are disciples of Jesus Christ understand that they have been commissioned by God, called by name, to go and share the message of the good news of Christ's death, resurrection, and that he is no longer holding our sins against us because Christ has taken them to the cross and paid that debt in full. So we've got to first sack the idea that God has favorites. He doesn't have favorites. First of all, I've said it before, I'm gonna say it again. He laughs in the face of an entire culture and says, do you know who I'm gonna pick first? A woman. Not only that, she's gonna get out of history as the first witness that ever saw the empty tomb. I don't care if you think that that lends credibility or doesn't credibility to sorry, that's who I'm picking. And oh, by the way, she's gonna be the first one to go tell the world that I am alive. And when it comes to this idea of staying long enough to be commissioned, we've gotta confront the other part. We've gotta stay with Jesus long enough to keep that nominal feeling of just, well, yeah, I'm a Christian, but don't ever ask me to go do anything. Keep that at bay and stay long enough to be commissioned and then also be honest with yourself. Because when I say, do you wanna be commissioned by God to go share his good news? That's actually a rhetorical question because you and I are commissioned by God. But we have gotta stay long enough to hear our names being called. Because most of us think this, Gosh, I hope he doesn't call me. I don't want to do that. Two, there's no way that he could use me. I can't be that. Look at me. Three, we just kind of go, yeah, I I don't even know what that's all about. And you go, how can that be me? How can I be called and commissioned to go do that? I'm going to tell you how. Because you know who Mary goes and tells? Eleven, well, actually, eleven scaredy cat disciples that are hiding in a room, supposedly, you know, these are the people that are going to change the world. And they're all scaredy cat. And they're hiding in a room with the door locked. And of course, the next chapter and the next, next part of this book, Jesus opens, <laughs> walks through the door that is closed and just says, peace be with you. And he goes and takes these scaredy cats who all of them go and die. Do you think all of them were like, no, I'm worthy, I'm good, I can go, I'm, he can commission me, I'm good to go. No, no, the only one at the cross was John and the rest of them were women. They were all a bunch of sissies but he commissioned every last one of them just like he commissioned Mary. Will you stay long enough for him to commission you? So I'll go through the four again. Will you stay around this thing, 
Will you stay around this story of the resurrection long enough to consider the evidence? Will you stay long enough to be called by name? Will you stay long enough to confront your misconceptions of who you think Jesus is versus the reality of who he is? And four, will you stay long enough to realize that you are commissioned, we all are, to share the good news of the resurrection? Let me pray for us and then we'll finish in celebration and worship. Lord God, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you for calling us. And Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gift of your resurrection and thank you for your servant Mary. Thank you, God, for her life and the way that we can look and see your word working in that story in our hearts. And so, Jesus, I lift up every single precious person that is here today, Lord God. Move in all of our lives, Jesus. We need you. We can't do it without you, Lord God. Jesus, we long to be in your will and not running from it. And so, Lord God, I pray that you would speak boldly to us about the evidence and the facts of who you are and who you claim to be, that you would call us in just in a moment of quiet to sit at your feet and to learn who you are and then in turn learn who we are because we know you. Lord God, we're so thankful that you are not dead in the grave like every other person who started some religion in this entire world, but that you are alive, Lord God, that we do not worship a way of life or a philosophy, but a risen Savior, a risen Savior who calls us by name. Lord, let us listen and respond and say, yes, Lord, here I am. It's in your awesome name we pray. Amen.